Welcome to my den and to this very special episode of the show. Real quick, pause. Name one Paramount film. Just one. If you find yourself drilling through your head a list of names of movies and you can't think of one, well, you're in the same boat I was when my guest today asked me this question the very first time we met. So let me ask you a follow-up question. If Paramount is such an iconic brand and branding is all that matters, and because that's what we've been taught, right, in business school, then surely you would be able to remember which films Paramount has made versus 21st Century Fox versus Universal Pictures versus Columbia Pictures, right? Well, if you're like most people and you can't name one, then you have identified the perfect illustration of what my guest today calls the big brand lie. The big brand lie is essentially when companies believe that branding is all that matters and that being better, faster, cheaper, or smarter is the way to do business, the way to create a company. But my guest today, who is the king of category design, has done extensive research showing that these brands who believe in the big brand lie fight over just 24% of that market category. Where does the other 76% go? To the category king, the first company to create a space, create a product or a service in that unique space and category. My guest today, Christopher Lockhead, has shared the stage with some incredible people. Everyone from former President Barack Obama to General Colin Powell to Navy SEAL Chris Fussell to the greatest chess master of all time, Gary Kasparov, among dozens and dozens of others. But today, he's just here with me in this space to have a real, raw conversation about life and about business. Lockhead is someone I consider to be an incredible friend and mentor. And even though we've only known each other for a few months, he is someone I have shared an immense amount about myself with and also who has supported me and my business. But beyond just being an incredible mentor to me, Lockhead was the former uh, CMO of multiple Silicon Valley firms, including Mercury that was sold to HP back in 2006 for $4.5 billion. And after he sold Mercury, he joined forces with a few other amazing people to co-create this new management discipline called category design. And since then, he's advised over 50 venture-backed startups. He's a, an investor in a few top-tier VC funds, and has done countless other things. But something extremely notable that I want to highlight here for those of you listening who are considering starting your own companies, whether they're VC-backed or not, if you are a founder or a want-to-be founder, I cannot encourage you enough to join Lockhead's newsletter called Category Pirates. And I swear to you, the information in his many ebooks that go out on this newsletter 
will be more valuable to you than any MBA or any other formal education. Because here is what his newsletter does. It is for category pirates, and it will revolutionize the way that you see and do business. And I have personally witnessed companies who have taken Lockhead's advice become the category creators and take that 76% share of the market category. The pirates who follow Christopher's work are founders who have no interest in competing. No interest in competing. Instead, they create different. They do things differently. And as a result, they're legendary. So go check out Category Pirates at Lockhead.com. That's L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. So you you hate recording on other podcasts because what? Yeah, that's been your experience. Well, I think, look, and I... I probably shouldn't say this, but most business podcasts are complete shite. Mm-hmm. They're very formulaic. And the host is a personal branding buffoon. Uh, you know, so, for example, uh, John Lee Dumas at um, Entrepreneurs on Fire. <laughs> <laughs> and in the, in the pre-session, you're talking to him just like this, and you're getting ready, mm-hmm. and he seems like a normal guy and all that stuff. And then he hits record, and he goes, and you're like, who are you? <laughs> you're a buffoon. That's who you are. And so business podcasts are, you know, a lot of the hosts are buffoons or these macho idiots who pose in front of planes they rented for the day and all that whole crowd. Anybody who poses in front of a plane, that's not somebody you want to be doing anything with as far as I'm concerned. You know, um, you can rent bridesmaids. <laughs> Tell me about that. (laughs) There's a service where, you know how you see all these lineups with, you know, oh, the cute little wedding and they've got like 15 bridesmaids and 15 groomsmen. Well, I just started, I was like, how how the fuck do people have this many friends who are going to say like, you know, I affirm you and I'm going to support your your marriage and all that. Well, you look it up and there's literally rent a bridesmaid service where you can pay someone to come, you know, wear, wear your bridesmaid dress and hop in your wedding and make you look good for all the photos. And they literally don't give a crap about you. <laughs> just look it up. It's sad. <laughs> it just goes to show you that... Um... If it's not on Instagram, it didn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how sad do you have to be to rent bridesmaids? Yeah. Well, how, sad, know, when I got how married, sad do you have to be to do any any of that? Like, the guy, there's a guy, I don't know if you saw this uh, last year during, or maybe, maybe it was the beginning of COVID in Japan. He started making a living off of rent a friend 
for a day. And he would go and his, his job, when he's the, the rented friend, his job was to sit in silence, not say anything, and just be people's companion for the day that they could rant to or, you know, go on a date with, quote unquote, out to a coffee shop or public place and pretend they had a friend. So it's like a hooker meets a therapist, but we don't give therapy or have sex. Yeah, <laughs> precisely, precisely. And it, and I was like, man, like, well, there's that guy too in Japan who, uh, who was the first person to marry a holograph. Yeah, and actually I'm about that, um, you know, as the metaverse continues to get built out, um, do you see more people marrying um, let's just call them digital people that aren't analog people. They're only digital people. <laughs> They're marrying an algorithm. I would not be surprised. Yeah, that, that freaks me out and I'm native digital, but it's, it's really sad to me. But yes, yeah, yeah, that's, that's certainly, I, I think it's going to start like it already is in Japan and it'll trickle over into, you know, other countries that aren't having population growth problems <laughs> in the same way. Yeah, it's kind of freaky. Well, and I haven't looked at data recently, Hannah, maybe, you know, but um, my understanding is Gen Z is um, the least sexually active generation in America in, I think, recorded history. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. And why do you correct. think that is? Oh, gosh, uh, so many reasons. I mean, I think one is uh, fear. Second is there is some sense of um at least what I'm seeing among my peers of lack of quality relationships that are out there. So, so there's just this tendency to just isolate uh, because it's easier. It's like you take the easy way out. Uh, it's easier to isolate. It's easier to, you know, use porn, go on internet sites versus make the effort to have a, a positive and healthy relationship with someone. So yeah, well, and COVID accelerated that, but why, why do you think it is? Well, of course, I'm not a native digital, but um, I think I think you're right. I don't know about the fear part. I want to ask you about that. But um, I think it's just a lot easier to have sex with the Internet. And I yeah, think, no kidding. Um, you know, I had uh, um, uh, some sex experts on my podcast a little while ago. Um, um, shit, what's the name of their podcast? It's one of the top sex podcasts, shameless sex, Amy and April, and they're unbelievable. And they talk about sex so openly. It's shocking. Even for a guy like me. I mean, they just like go right at it. It's like, whoop, whoo, there we're going. But anyway, um, and, um, I, what they told me, I'm trying to remember, but I think for like 150 bucks, you can outfit yourself with a bunch of stuff. And so we now have peripherals and goggles and all this sort of stuff. And so, and I've talked to some young people about this, young men, not so much young women, but uh, who've said to me, look, um, it's just easier. I can have sex with whoever I want. I don't have to worry about all the bullshit of dealing with a woman, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, and they have all these, and to your point, you know, at least for younger men, my experience would be part of why you learn relationship skills as a younger man in particular is because you want to get laid and you have to be nice to a gal and learn to develop a relationship and learn to listen and learn to give a shit and so forth and so on. 
to make that happen. And so you, at least in part, develop relationship and communication skills uh, with the opposite sex or the same sex, uh, as the case may be, um, mm-hmm. in part so that you can have a sexual relationship with them, which, of course, is part of a healthy relationship. Um, and so in a world where they're shy and they've spent a lot of time behind a screen and they're native digital, so the digital world is their real world, um, having sex in the analog world is a, is a scary thing and a complicated thing. And, and, you know, I can just go into my bedroom and get this thing done in 10 or 15 minutes and yeah. <laughs> go on with my day. But I, yeah. that's just anecdotal. No, well, well, that's kind of what I meant by fear is it's like there's this fear of getting into real relationships. So Internet porn, metaverse sex, you know, there's there's monitors in the metaverse to simply make sure that people that's not all that people are doing in the metaverse. <laughs> that's that's how much of a problem it is. But like it's essentially gotten to the point where. Um, one of my friends, he's, he's so wise, he's, you know, native digital 21 and he's, he's so wise. And he's like, basically what's happening now in the, the native digital world of things when it comes to relationships and, and sex is porn and native and, and digital sex makes you feel like a man without having to be one. And that's exactly what's happening across my entire generation. You can feel like a man. You can, you know, now that you have all these devices and you're, you know, you can have sex, virtual sex in the metaverse with someone you've never met. You never know their real name. You know, you know all these things. Now that you can do that, you can feel like a man without having to be one, without having to really engage in a relationship with, with a woman. And suddenly, you know, you're, I guess, experiencing a very shallow version of what a relationship is. And for, for some people, that's enough for a long time. And, and, and that's what I see with my peers. It's, it's rather frightening because, I, you know, as a happily married person, happily married woman, I'm like, I, if, I, if that was the surface level connection I have with someone, I'd probably just wouldn't even think that existing was worth anything just because that's how much a part of of me my husband is so i don't know how how do you feel about about this whole thing you know it's interesting we're talking about this a couple of years ago hannah i just started a a a file just clipping things and keeping them about uh men because at some point i want to write a book about this um you know, I got a few other things on my plate right now, but I, I do keep all this stuff. And so what, what the picture that emerges is this, um, you know, and by the way, the, I, the title, the title, the working title for the book is what the fuck happened to men. Um, but there's a scary picture in our world, which is um, uh, very little physical activity. So uh, one of the toughest jobs in America right now is military recruiter because we don't make men. And so 18 year olds can't do five pushups. And smart military, I've read articles and I've clipped and saved them where military recruiters, um, just like marketers, they have to go further up in the funnel. So they create fitness programs and so forth and so on um, for 15, 16 year old boys so that they, they have some physical capability by the time they could potentially enlist. So that's the one piece. Another piece that's interesting is when I was a kid, 
and I don't have exact data about this. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. But when I was a kid, um, I would guess roughly half our teachers were men. If it wasn't half, it was probably 60-40. There were guys around. You know, my chemistry teacher was a guy. My phys ed teacher was a guy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. English teacher was a guy. Um, and, and Ritalin and these other things didn't exist. Uh, and so you were in a roughly 50-50 environment. And even though they force you to sit in the classroom for six hours a day and shut up, which is a crazy thing to ask any kid to do. And um, I don't have an experience of being a girl kid, but as a boy kid, that seems completely insane. Um, but what we now have today is a situation where 80 or 90 percent of um, the teachers are women. Of course, in general, it's the mother uh, who is raising the child more than the father in general. Um, and so you have a situation now where young boys are growing up in a very feminine world and we're drugging the boy out of the boy. So Ritalin gets rid of some of the behavioral problems. You know, in, when I was in grade two or no, grade three, I was given a, an award for the most uh, mature boy in the class. And in grade four, I spent most of the year in the principal's office because I think that can happen to boys, right? You get rambunctious and you get, and so, so the boy is being medicated and sort of not, not beat, but, but, um, bred out, if you will, or conditioned out maybe is the better word out of the, out of the boy. And so, um, part of, I think what's going on as I've looked at all this data is by the time young men get to be teenagers, they're very feminized, uh, and, and look, feminine exposure for men is a very good thing in general, but, um, you know, too much of a good thing can be too much. And the other thing that not, doesn't get talked about is you and I are here because our ancestors were good at fucking fighting and farming. That's why we're here. <laughs> yep. And so that the aggressive part of being a man um, the violent part of being a man is a big part of what has made the human race thrive. And so um, there seems to be a desire to exit that from men. And look, I'm not advocating violence, far from it. One of the things that I talk with young men about all the time is how to channel those three things powerfully. Because... Uh, um, if you don't understand that at your core, that's why you're here because your bloodline wouldn't have made it otherwise. Then one of the things that all men and particularly younger men need to learn is how to harness their aggression in positive ways. Well, we don't talk about that stuff. So I think we have a very feminized group of younger men in general. Of course, these are radical generalizations. And I think we have a group of young men because they're native digitals, their primary world is digital. So it makes sense that they want to have digital relationships as they are, as they might be. And they would want to have digital sex because they primarily live in a digital world. I understand that part. And when you add to that, that conditionally, contextually, and sometimes pharmaceutically, um, the boy gets kind of, uh, twist or wrung out of the boy, so to speak. And it's not cool to be any of those things. And, um, and nope, you can't get in a fight anymore. Right. 
because bullying, which on one hand is good, but on the other hand, you know, everybody needs to learn how to handle themselves. So that's a, that's a tough topic um, to deal with. And the other thing that's interesting, a friend of mine who's a mother said this to me a while ago, and it has echoed in my brain ever since then, which is um, young people are never not supervised. And so there's no concept of uh, you and I being uh, eight years old and saying, hey, let's let's meet at the basketball court and uh, let's you know play some one on one. And then some other kids show up and maybe we get a pickup game going. So this idea of a pickup game, whether it's football or baseball or whatever, they, whatever it is, there's no such thing as a pickup game anymore. There's there's people don't have the experience of being picked by a team captain or you know, they don't have that experience. And so children are always supervised by an adult. And so this sort of learning to be self-organizing, uh, learning social skills around dealing with conflict, social skills around, you know, games are so, and sports are so important because they teach us so much about life. Uh, music is important in that exact same way uh, on the creative side. And, you know, maybe you want to start a band and you got to, you know, you, you got to navigate a lot of relationship stuff to, to start a band and be in a band, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my point is these unsupervised situations that were the norm um, when I was a child are not, not only not the norm now, but for the most part, they don't happen. Uh, there are a lot of kids who are 16, 17, 18 years old before they do anything of consequence on their own. So I think there's a whole bunch of things at play um, that mean that there is a um, feminization of men um, and they're native digitals. And so, of course, it makes sense to have sex with the Internet. But that's 100%. my general assessment. Does that, how does that land for you? Oh, 100%. And my husband and I were actually just having a conversation about this this morning. We Neither of us slept well last night and we rolled over in the morning and we're like, what the fuck is happening with our country? What's going to happen if all of the shit that's going down with Russia and Ukraine, if you have an entire generation of, you know, our fellow peers and even looking younger than us because the draft age is what, 18 to 25 typically? So I'm 24, he's 25, and we're sitting here going, oh my gosh, all of the shit that's going down is going to come back to rely on those of us, if we end up in who knows what, you know, is going to happen with that conflict and, and where it goes. But what happens if you have countries like the U.S. who have become very feminized? And I would 100% agree with you there. I mean, we talked about that last time just a couple months ago on, on Folly or Different because I was like, we, we are in a world where women are educating more, women are parenting more, and men have just fucking left the scene it seems like it, 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 they haven't fully exited obviously i have you know i have wonderful men in my life but it just seems like like women like women have taken over in a lot of ways and i'm speaking about that as a woman that's what i feel and that we have have made men so much less capable of being those those humans who were made i i believe made and created to step up so what happens to your point what happens when 
we talk about, you know, peace and harmony and we medicate our boys to be less, uh, less aggressive. What happens when a country who's not doing that to their men decides they want to they want to take the bait? You know, like what happens if if we don't prepare ourselves for the fact that other countries aren't on the same level of femininity? You know, you countries in the Middle East, they're not doing countries that in the like Middle Russia. East, I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, they're not doing that. So yes, They're it might be fun that in and Ukraine, fine and dandy. I'll tell you that. Yeah, no fuck. So like all all of our country here in the U.S. and I, I mean it's happening in a lot of first world countries because we're not having to face you know poverty and aggression on our streets and have to you know we rely on our police force. We don't we don't have to have you know arms in our hands when we go out to the grocery store. Like we live in a very privileged society, and so a lot of that has contributed in my view to a lack of preparation or even a lack of global understanding of what's going on i was even reading an article this morning that says gen z has you know one answer for for you know uh, basically in response to could we be drafted and it's don't draft me because we're just simply not prepared you know yes I was just looking as you were talking to get the data. According to Georgetown um, University, as of spring, I'm reading this directly. This, so this is September 10th, 2021. As of spring 2021, women made up 59.5% of all college students, a record high. So now you're at 60-40 men and women in college. And so you, to your point on opting out, I, I think that's right. And, you know, the other sort of data points I've been collecting sort of for this book that I'm sort of not really writing, but writing uh, is, is, is um, uh, sort of the fact that men have opted out that I, I don't well, I can Google it in a sec, but there's a huge percentage of men who are for all intents and purposes out of the economy. They're not working. They're not looking for work. They've opted out and they play video games. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, it's tough. And you know, what I wonder to ask you now, of course you're married, but like, this seems to be a problem for Gen Z women. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. I actually, <laughs> several of my friends right now are on Hinge and Bumble and all of these different dating sites trying to, trying to find, you know, meaningful dates. I mean, they're solid women, they have high standards. And it took, I want to say for my, the one friend I'm thinking of right now, who is finally after probably six months, she's probably been on 40 or 50 dates, you know, phone dates that turned into nothing, then in-person dates that then turned into nothing. She's finally with a guy who's worth his salt and they've been together a month and who knows where it's going to go. But, and I, okay, I live in North Carolina too. So we're in the South where being a Southern gentleman is still somewhat of a thing. You know, I'm, I don't live in New York city. I don't live in LA. So we still have this culture that, you know, in terms of, if you look at the entire United States, I would say is probably still very centered around trying to create, you know, men who have a more traditional role. Like we just still have a lot of traditional values in my area. And we still have this dearth of good men, 
just men who are worth their salt, who aren't going to take advantage of you or manipulate you or aren't in it just for the sex, who, who, who aren't in it just for the, you know, subtle companionship. Or heck, one guy she dated was even so... The only term I can use to describe him is lackluster. <laughs> just like complete... He just didn't care about anything. So it just, it, he just didn't care. You know, you would tell him something or she would talk to him about something that was really on her heart or some big, something she thought would be a massive conversation, you know, about values or faith or beliefs or any of those topics. And he just didn't seem to have an opinion. And it was very, very hard even watching them try to date because I'm sitting there, you know, we'd be on a double date and I'm just looking at him like, did you never think about this in your 22 years of life? Like, did you never th think to have an opinion on a topic as important as, you know, what you believe? So it, it's just a different, different dating landscape. Did you ever experience that when you were dating back in the day? No, no, nothing, nothing comparable. I mean, it was a very different time. I also got married very young. I was married at 21 to my first wife. I didn't so I was know also that. Married very, I got married young. at 20, 20 as well. Yeah, 20, about a week before I turned 21. Yeah. So same thing. Um, and uh, divorced at 38. Uh, so we had a pretty good run, you know. And um, you know, people say, oh, you know, why did your marriage fail? Some relationships just run their course. And I think that's what happened to us. We're still great friends. We talk on a fairly regular basis. It tends to be sort of up and down. You know, sometimes we don't talk for six or seven months. And then sometimes we talk a bunch, depending on something that's going on in the world or our lives or whatever. Um, but she's an extraordinary woman. Uh, my divorce lawyer said we had the nicest divorce he'd had in, 30, in a 30-year career. Um, it, it was a bummer and it was painful and it was not what either one of us wanted. So I don't want to uh, paint an inaccurate picture. Um, uh, but at the same time, the relationship had run its course. Um, so no, I, I never really experienced any of that. I did date for a couple years um, in between my first wife and, and, and Carrie. Uh, by the way, when you get remarried, the dumbest thing you can call your second spouse is your current wife. That's a dumb thing to say. <laughs> What's for the, the story behind this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious now. You have to tell me. Well, no, you just, if you call her your current wife, it leaves a, you know, sometimes the unspoken is much louder than the spoken. So current doesn't, doesn't necessarily depict a future together. <laughs> <laughs> You're my, my current, my current flavor of the year. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my wife is not my current, my wife. She's my wife. <laughs> She's actually, your wife. I don't even call my ex-wife my ex-wife very much. I, I, I think I prefer calling her my starter wife. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that before. Your starter yeah. wife. Like, yeah, and like I was her starter husband. And uh, I hope, you know, we did great together. So <laughs> That's hilarious. But, you know, but when I was dating a little bit, um, I certainly found myself on dates with people and I went, um, why am I here? This person has the IQ of a houseplant. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to 
really get that uh, when you're texting and even talking if you talk. I, I know today a lot of people will go on their first analog date and not even have heard each other's voices. Um, back when I was single for a few years, um, that was a little unusual. You'd start off by talking inside the dating app, but then, you, you know, you by texting inside the dating app, but then you'd talk. So, yeah, I definitely had an experience of that. But I, I think, you know, the reality is, and this is just my my life experience, is we as a culture, we as a society, for whatever fucking reason, seem to uh, manufacture way more legendary women than men. And that was true when I was young. And it's true today. Um, I think it's true in a uh, uniquely, um, uh, I was going to say, well, uniquely horrible. Maybe that's <laughs> overly harsh. But, you know, a scenario where the average man can't handle himself physically, where the average man is disconnected from a lot of what's going on in the world, where the average man has very little, if any, ambition, uh, to your point, um, where your average man is not, if not educated in a formal sense, at least educated in an informal sense and is curious about the planet and has plans and dreams and hopes and, and is trying to get some stuff done and, you know, is an interesting person. You know, the less we have of that, the, the less rich we are as a culture. And, you know, I feel for women of your generation um, because it, it seems that when I speak with them that it, it does seem harder for them to find um, legendary men than it was for women of my generation. That's so interesting. And it's all, it's also fascinating to me how quickly that seems to have changed because I mean, you're, you're, you know, two generations above me, my parents' generation, and they, they share the same thing with me. It's, you know, when they were younger, it just wasn't as difficult. And, it's so easy to blame it all on technology or, or whatnot, but I, I believe it's what we've been talking about this whole time. It's not just technology, it's a combination of technology and medication is to blame a whole lot more than I think any of the world is talking about right now. Because what happens when you take a little boy in kindergarten or second grade or third grade, and instead of encouraging him to play, just like a boy should, who's, you know, adventurous and wants to try things and is up and about. Why do we label that ADHD? Like, why, why are we medicating for that? I mean, I get it's difficult to, I, I suppose, control a child. <laughs> control, I say in quotes, because why, why should that be, you know, the goal? I, my sister actually was telling me she worked at a summer camp this summer as, uh, as a nurse and she, one of her responsibilities was, I think, I think the kids were between the ages of 10 and 15. So it was like middle school and early high school camp. She, one of her responsibilities was to give the kids their medications, right? They have to take them before dinner or whatever. She said she could not believe the number of 10 year olds in this camp. It was over half of them who were on at least three to four different types of medication for not even medical issues. Like, you know, there were a few of them who had allergies or, or whatnot, but just the number of children in that camp who were standing in line before dinner to get their, me their prescripted medication for ADHD or, you know, uh, the like 
types of, of, of conditions. And it just made me sick almost to, to the stomach just to think that that is what's happening across the country is you, you, you know, your, your 10 year old starts experiencing symptoms of anxiety or depression, Medicaid. Your child starts depicting, you know, symptoms that they can't sit still in class, Medicaid. It's the answer to everything. Medicaid, Medicaid, Medicaid. It's like your mantra of make the logo bigger. Like it's just the solution to everything people think. It's you just label something and just stick it on. You think that's the solution. No, fuck, that's not the solution. Yes. Now, look, I think it is important to to touch on that, you know, for some people, Drugs like Ritalin and other drugs like that are godsend and, and, you know, it legitimately makes a giant difference for them. And and that's wonderful. Um, And I'm not a medical professional, but it does. You do get the sense and I, you know, could be wrong, but that we've overdone it. But regardless of the drug part of it, we certainly have created a context that um, in general, we don't create, uh, we don't manufacture enough legendary men. And when you now have. Um, you know, 50% of the population being female and the other 50% being male, and now 60% of college uh, students are female, you know, those things are scary. And uh, the number of men starting businesses is, is shrinking and the number of women starting businesses is increasing. So one's a good metric, one's not a good metric. Um, yeah, the, the, these things are very concerning and they do have a military uh, consequence to them. There's no question about that. Yeah, what do you, what do you think? Just even looking at what could potentially happen, like what what do we even do about this? I mean, neither of us are professionals in this, but I'm just curious to pick your brain. Like, what does happen if we end up in World War Three? There starts, you know, draft starts happening. Like, how can how can our military even hope to scale to make these men men before it re- it's required of them? Or is there an answer? I, I think it's probably a complicated answer that requires a professional. Um, the experiential uh, answer I'd give you just from my own life and the lives of people around me is I personally am surrounded by uh, a legendary group of men. Extraordinary men. And the vast majority of them are fathers. And that's a very good thing. And so I think the more children, I think it's important for female children as well uh, to grow up around legendary men. And I'm not a father, but I'm a pretty committed uncle. And um, I don't think you can have enough good people uh, around a child, influencing a child and loving and supporting a child. And so I think the degree to which in this context, um, children have at least one and maybe even a few male role models that are, you know, real men. And I don't mean that in a macho way. I mean that in a, uh, the way you might think of it is a 360 degree way, right? They have good good ethics and morals. They conduct themselves in an admirable way, admirable way most of the time. Um, they, their decision-making is, is thoughtful. Um, they have strong relationships with people in their lives. They are successful in their careers in that, and I don't, not everybody has to make as much money as just Bezos, but 
successful to me in your career is uh, you can be a good provider. That's something we don't talk about very much anymore. And it doesn't mean that the 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 woman or the wife or who you know the female around, if there's a female in the mix, um, can't also be a legendary provider. But I think men who aren't men, in that they are not respected by their peers, regardless of in what, men who can't figure out how to truly provide for themselves or their own family. Um, these men have a really big problem in life. And it's really a, a big problem for our society. So I think the answer is expose children to as many good uh, role model men as possible. And if, if not that, not that single mothers don't have enough <laughs> to do, but for, you know, I was raised by a single mother. And um, I was lucky enough to have some great real role models, male role models. And she made sure I spent time with those uh, male role models. And my father was one of them. You know, my father was deeply committed to being a engaged divorce dad. And he came to, you know, uh, cub camp uh, as, the, as the dad helper counselor for a week every summer and you know, he taught me to ski and he taught me to hike. And, you know, he, he gave me my love of the outdoors. And those are those are guy things to go do. Uh, and those are good things for guys to learn to do and to learn to love Mother Nature. Um, and so, you know, and my grandfather on my mother's side was a legendary man. And he was an incredible role model for me. And he he's the source of my confidence. And so I was lucky that I had legendary role models who were male and I think my mother um, was savvy enough to understand that um, the more time I could spend with my father and my grandfather, I also have uh, a few legendary uncles. Uh, one of the guitars you see behind me is my uncle John's guitar. He passed away recently and he gave me the gift of, of music and a love of, of rock music. Uh, and so I think if you're in a situation as a, as a mother or even as a single father, um, exposing your children to good men um, in a conscious way where they get exposed to them, like truly see them in action. Um, that's a very powerful thing. Thank you for that. I, I didn't know you were raised by a single mom, but I love that, that the men in your life were still involved. And it actually reminds me of, I was watching this great keynote by Marilyn York, who is an attorney, a, a divorce attorney, but she actually only represents men in divorce cases for this very reason that we're talking about is just all the data pointing to how instrumental a father is in, in the ability for a child to be successful in life, whether that child is male or female. And I just thought that perspective, her perspective on just fatherhood was fascinating and essentially the whole output of what she advised anybody in any situation of divorce to do is make sure the father still has some role in the child's life, it, whatever that might look like. How, you know, try as try your darndest to make sure that the father is still involved in some way. And I I loved that message because that's what I've seen among my peers as well is just the importance of a father and all the data, of course, points to it as well. Um, moms are fantastic. Mothers are fantastic. My mother is amazing, but 
there are so many things I learned from my father as a woman as well that my mom never could have taught me. And, and, and that's, you know, obviously what the data points to in, in every child's life. So I, well, and so here's the data point, right? I, mm-hmm. I, this is what I remember, but I just wanted to Google it to make sure. So according to the U S department of justice, one in three children, not male or female, just children is without a father in the home in the United States of America. And they say that depression is more likely to be experienced in young fatherless teens. Yep. And so um, the absence. I believe if you find it too, there's um, a lack. the, The likelihood to graduate high school is much lower for fatherless teens Mm. as well i'd have to to pull up the exact data but it's it's something like that and also the likelihood to go to college yeah and then i can tell you as a deeply committed uncle uh an uncle to kids who are are related to me and not related to me but are spiritually uh related to me um you know, the interesting thing that I experience with the parents of these children is they deeply encourage me and Carrie, my wife, to engage with the children. And, you know, her sister has three kids. And from a very, very young age, uh, I was taking them and doing stuff with them. And so was Carrie. Sometimes the two of us uh, sometimes one-on-one, take them for a day, take them overnight, do stuff with them. Um, uh, one of my best friends, um, who's a co-author of, uh, play bigger with me, uh, Al Ramadan, you know, he has two children, same thing. And we would, you know, ski together when they were young and do, you know, do all these things together. And so I think from, from my perspective as an uncle, I have found it extraordinary that the other uh, people and the adults in my life that I love who have children are willing to give you those children and go do stuff with them or do stuff with all of us together. We all go hiking or we all go skiing or we all go surfing or we all have a big fun barbecue or whatever it is, right? And so I think when parents take, at least this has been my experience, uh, take a very open stance and a somewhat proactive stance around exposing their children to other good adults and to, to trusting those adults to take those children when the uh, parent is not necessarily around and to do stuff with them and have fun with them and teach them things and um, et cetera, enjoy each other. All of those things, at least in my experience, have been very powerful for me personally. And you see the children and it's amazing. And so, you know, uh, this, this mantra of it takes a village, I think that is true. And I think if you're in a situation where you are one of the one in three, where there's no father around, um, you know, and I, maybe I'll ask her, uh, my mom, her name's Jackie. Um, maybe I'll ask Jackie, you know, how, was it real frontal lobe conscious for you or was it just sort of instinctive or whatever? But whatever it was, um, she definitely made sure I was around a lot of men. Yeah. Speaking of Al, and this is literally the worst transition segue in podcast history, but <laughs> I have to ask because I, uh, I loved the, uh, the forward when I was reading Play Bigger and, 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 and your books in general, but I, I just have to ask, 
what the hell is up with bad tuna? (laughs) (laughs) So so when we started the company. Pull out your whiskey. (laughs) Isn't that part of the story? When we started the company uh, that ultimately we called Play Bigger, um, uh, you know, we were brainstorming names. And uh, Al and I are apt to have a, a beer or a cocktail together <laughs> and, and get a little silly from time to time, particularly after a you know, long bike ride or a surf or whatever. And somewhere along the line, we brainstormed that Bad Tuna would be a very, very funny name for our uh, new advisory consulting firm. <laughs> but uh, we never really considered it. But what put it over the top was we... Uh, uh, we hired a gal to come and kind of be the person who runs the company. And uh, and uh, we thought it would be pretty challenging for a gal to uh, pick up the phone and call somebody and say, hi, it's Mary calling from Bad Tuna. That it, somehow it seemed worse from a woman than a man. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and, Chris, welcome to Bad Tuna. <laughs> exactly. This is the Bad Tuna podcast. And so... Uh, yeah, we just thought it was funny. That's all. We just thought it was really, really funny. And as guys who, you know, I wouldn't call us fishermen, but we like to go on surf trips and often on surf trips when it's flat, you go fishing and stuff. So I've done, you know, a little bit of fishing. Uh, bad tuna has a bad smell. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. So, yeah. So maybe your new name then, because yesterday you said you were what? The, my, my evil unwanted uncle you could just be the the bad tuna uncle we can just we can just rebrand you yes the bad tuna uncle yeah that, the, that or that maybe works. just the bad tuna yes that you should, would be you should fun totally too. rebrand although the other one i like some of them call me funkle which i think is really fun oh that's fun too like your your nephews yeah the, like fun uncle funkle your funkle that's yeah. amazing so <laughs> that's that's pretty impressive i i uh i never had any nicknames for myself even growing up just because Hannah is a hard, hard named. I mean, I guess you could say Han. People sometimes call me like Hannah Banana, but it's just super, mm-hmm. super cliche. I'm, yeah. I've been trying, I need a, I need a better, uh, better Hannah spinoff brand. You could be nah. Nah. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> hey, nah. Better yet, I need a theme song. Yeah. What's that? Uh, hey, now I'm a rock star. You mean Hannah? <laughs> 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 I don't know. Hey, I haven't like, consumed any like kind of a stimulant, so I'm just uh, <laughs> just spitballing <laughs> in a very sober once, way. Once you do, once you do start drinking or something, that I, I would love to see what you would come up with because I bet some some rock theme song or something would come out. Um, but okay, so I. I I actually do want to ask you some questions I've been dying to because it's, I feel like I've known you for forever, even though we met, what, like four months ago? <laughs> Hasn't even you, been that long. And you do know I'm running for president of the Hannah Grady Williams um, uh, um, fan club. Fan club? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I talk about you all the time, too, so you can, you can totally run for president. I will, I'll, I'll give you a seat. Um, I am, so I am still running into so many leaders lately who just do not get this idea of category design. Like I try, I try to tell them, I'm like, 
Lockhead's the brains. Please read everything he does. Like, go, go, you know, go subscribe to Category Pirates, literally, because he just explained it so much better than I could. But what the fuck is wrong with you people? Like, who <laughs> don't get category design? So, like, what do you even... How do you explain, t take me through like third grade category design 101. Like how do you, what is category design? Well, so I'll give you the answer and then I can give you some fun things to play with people about. So the answer okay. is category design is a new management discipline. Um, and what it's about is the ability to create and dominate a new market category. And in business, there is a, um, an assumption that gets made that never gets talked about. It's undeclared. It's undiscussed. And, and it goes like this. As a matter of fact, it's not even an assumption. It, so let me give you this analogy. Two blocks from me right here is the Pacific Ocean. And we have these giant flying dinosaurs that are incredible. They're called pelicans, but they're giant flying dinosaurs, right? <laughs> no, I mean, that's what they fucking are. And, if, and you can get really close to them. They'll, if you stand, particularly if you stand up on the bluff, they'll fly by you very close, right? And so you can get a really good look at them. Of course, you could look at pictures and videos on the internet, but they're an extraordinary looking animal. And um, they hunt and eat fish. And they, they're, they're a pack animal, so they fly in a flock. And, um, and when one of them sees a school of fish, all of a sudden they go from flying parallel to the earth and they go straight down very fast and they dive into the water and they have these very uh, long beaks and this very sort of, um, stretchy neck and they scoop the fish up and then they eat the fish. And then, and then if there's a group of them, as there often is, they'll go bam, 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 and they hit the water. You know, if you've never seen it, just Google pelicans um, uh, fishing and you'll see it. It's, it's very, it's a very extraordinary thing to see. Now, let's talk about the fish for a second. If you're a fish, everything you know is water. You've lived your whole life in water. Everybody you know lives in water. Um, you never think about the availability of water. Um, all there is is water. And uh, the moment you learn there's a whole other world that isn't water, you're dead. Okay, so in business, here's the water. Here's the undiscussed unexplored, unconsidered, unthought about, undialogued on assumption. And it's so much beyond an assumption that it's just water. And it goes like this. What we do in business is we compete for market share in an existing market category with a better product or a better brand. That's generally what most people do. And there's, uh, I, I just Googled it the other day. I think there's roughly uh, 50,000, if I'm remembering the number right, Hannah. We put it in a recent category, Pirates. Uh, business strategy 
books and marketing books on Amazon, something like that. Um, yep, that was in your recent newsletter, 50,000. 50,000, so I remember you're right. Okay, thank you. Um, and so the vast majority, I haven't read all of them, but I've read many of the classics, as you might expect, and a lot of the non-classics that are legendary, but um, the vast majority of them have the same uh, contextual scaffolding and it goes, it, it, you know, if you think about Michael Porter, if you think about, uh, you know, his whole thing being competition, you think about one of the most influential books of the last 30 years, The Innovator's Dilemma by uh, Clayton Christensen. The whole premise of that book and a lot of other books is exactly what I just described. And, and, and Christensen goes even further and talks about disrupt how, how products disrupt markets. And those products take over the market. And that's because the lens, the mental contextual scaffolding that we have is brand, business model, product. The problem with that thinking is it's just not fucking right. That's not what happens quote, disruptive products do not, quote, take over markets. That doesn't happen. And here's my proof. Did you have a Red Bull Cola anytime recently? No. No way. Did you enjoy a Colgate lasagna recently? Nope. That was a product. And here's probably a more potent current more current example. Microsoft created the Office Productivity Suite with Microsoft Office roughly 30 years ago. Mike Mabel Sr. was the guy that did it. I had him on Fall Year Different. He explained the story, which I could tell you if you like. But at the time, that I'll give you the very short version. At the time, there were multiple categories. There was word processor, and that was an independent category, database, spreadsheet, uh, presentation software. Okay. And in each of those categories, there were category queens and kings. There was a company called WordPerfect. There was a company called Lotus One, uh, a product called Lotus One, Two, Three, uh, Harvard Graphics for presentations, etc. Well, Microsoft had an aha, which is they knew something that Eddie Yoon teaches the world about, which is the most important people in any given market category or super consumers, the top eight to 10% um, that are the most enthusiastic, not necessarily by the most, although they often are one and the same, but certainly the most enthusiastic. And through Eddie's research, he discovered this incredible thing that Mike Maples understood, which is a super of one is a super of nine. If you're a super of one thing, you're a super of nine other things. And so one of the secrets to growth that Eddie writes about in his legendary book, Super Consumers, and we have written, built on, on Category Pirates, um, is how to leverage this insight to grow a new category and become a category queen. So, Maple Senior, he understands this. And he says, you know, if you use a spreadsheet, you probably use a word processor. And if you use a word processor, you probably use presentation software. So let's put a bundle together. Let's give you a discount for buying all products from us. And from a product perspective, 
we're going to build links. We're going to create a user uh, interface and a user experience that is similar and over time virtually identical across all products. So you only have to learn one thing once. Anybody who ever used WordPerfect and used Lotus 123 knows that you start at zero when you do that, right? Not the case when you integrate the user experience layer across four or five products in this bundle. And they launch a category they call Office Productivity Suite. That's what they called it. And they tied the brand to the category and called it Microsoft Office. Okay. Now, I don't know exactly how long ago it was. It might even be 15 years. Maybe you can Google it while I'm talking. Um, Google introduces um, Google Docs. And most people I know would say Google Docs is a much superior product, a.k.a. better. And Google Docs is fucking free. So you have a better product by most people's opinion. If you read the, you know, the reviews and shit. Certainly, if you want to collaborate with anybody, I, we write category pirates on Google Docs because when you try to collaborate using track changes in Microsoft Word, you want to hit yourself in the nuts with a fucking hockey puck. Um, and so, so here you have Google with a superior product. Guess what Microsoft's category share is? I have no idea. 89%. Mm. And so here's the aha around category design. The company that designs the space is best positioned to dominate it. On average, that company, and we did the math, that is peer-reviewed and published in the Harvard Business Review. And if you want to publish data in the Harvard Business Re Review, you better get ready for a proctology exam. 76% in the technology space, and in most industries are beginning to behave like the technology industry because everybody's a tech company now. So these dynamics are getting more and more true in more and more places over time. But in the tech space, the analysis we did showed that the category queen, that is to say the company that wins, gets 76%, not market share, market cap. That is to say, you add up all of the market caps or values or valuations of, uh, of companies in a given market category. And we ask the data set, what percentage does the leader have? And that answer is 76%. So the other aha here, Hannah, is um, if you make the unconscious fish decision, you are competing for 24% of the value. You're already in a losing game. And if somebody introduces a new category that displaces your category, you get eaten like the fish gets eaten. And so category design is really the most powerful skill in business because it's one thing to capture demand, which is the game most people play. And it's a whole other thing to create the demand. And what most people forget is that everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. We enjoy automobiles because Henry Ford was a legendary category designer, introducing the world to the horseless carriage. And so the minute you begin to understand this, that just like a company, just like a product, 
just like a brand, just like a business model, market categories can be designed. And the designer is best positioned if she can execute the design, which is a big if, but many of them do. Um, she becomes the category queen and takes two thirds of the economics and everybody else fights over the difference. And the minute you understand those things, you never will play a we're better than them competition game. So essentially what you're saying in a nutshell is that the company who creates the category and is the first mover is statistically, you said, has 76% of the market cap, even if a company, so say in the example of Microsoft Office and Google Docs, even if a company comes in later, tries to take market share, offers it free, offers a better collaboration set of tools, they still are in that, stuck in that 24% share. Correct. Correct. And in, in, I mean, in, it, in, in well over a decade of trying to com compete directly with Microsoft, Google has made like zero inroads. Also, I want to touch on something you said. You said first mover. So this is really important. When most people hear first mover, what they hear is first company to have a, to invent this product. They, what they hear is inventor. So we don't use the firm, the term first mover for that reason. Um, because it is actually not that it is the first company whose category design tips at scale. So for example, most people who look at the world through a competition better lens would say to you, oh, well, the reason Facebook beat MySpace was because Facebook had a better product. And everybody nods their head when they pray at the product altar. Well, that's actually not true. Facebook had the superior, as a matter of fact, I'm going to use this word on purpose, radically different offering. And once their uh, definition, their design of what a social network uh, should be, took hold, MySpace got um, displaced. It reminds me exactly of what's happening with Clubhouse and the idea thieves like LinkedIn and Instagram that are stealing. So, you know, Instagram decided to launch Reels. Why? Because TikTok was successful. Just you know, trying, trying to take over that space and they're doing miserably with that. At least that's what my understanding is of looking in terms of, you know, LinkedIn tried to do the same thing or is trying to with, with Clubhouse, with their, the live audio platform. What, what are your thoughts on, on those two moves? So here's the mistake that almost everybody makes. They compete by playing a comparison game and asking, the minute you say our product is better than their product, you are asking to be compared. Steve Jobs did not think there was any Apple product that was comparable to anything that existed on planet Earth. In other words, you can buy this or you gotta buy something completely different because there's nothing close, because we stand alone. So what they do is they compete on product, on features. 
here's what here's how categories get created they get created around a shared agreement about a problem slash opportunity and there's no new category that emerges until somebody either introduces a new problem or takes an existing problem problem and i'm going to use these words very carefully reframes it because one of our mantras around here is frame it name it and claim it so for example the reason google has gotten nowhere is they've made literally zero attempt to frame a different problem they tell the world we solve the same problem now yeah, we're in the cloud makes us better people are like yeah well we're used to Microsoft Office. We're going to pay 250 bucks a year per employee for this thing that we could get for free. But we're going to pay for it because they didn't reframe the problem. However, the problem called personal transportation had been solved for a long time in multiple categories. Buses, subways, bicycles, automobiles, et cetera, et cetera, taxis. Uber comes along and they reimagine the problem in a, again, I'm going to use this word on purpose, different context. And of course, the different context is Travis is in France, in Paris, and it's raining. And I don't know if you've ever been in Paris when it's raining, but it's like being in New York when it's raining. Good luck getting a cab. And the iPhone had been introduced. I don't know how, you know, I can't remember exactly the founding date of Uber, but you know, fairly early into the life of the iPhone. And he asks himself a very important question, which is why the fuck can't I press a button on this magical uh, computer device, Star Trek communicator thing I have here and uh, have somebody come get me? Why am I screaming and yelling and waving and et cetera, et cetera. And thus the category uh, of rideshare was created. Now, it wasn't that the problem hadn't been solved. It had been solved. Uber is not competing with taxis. Uber is different than taxis. And so the aha here is there's two kinds of problems. There's a problem that we didn't know that we had that gets evangelized through a provocative point of view. And when enough people get that point of view, they have the same aha that the creator founder had. Boom, the category tips. And that's how you compete. The only way to compete is category to category, not product to product and brand to brand. Because when you're comparing, when you're, when you're, when you're having a better conversation, it's always better in the context of what? So Pepsi spent billions yes. of dollars saying Pepsi tastes better than Coke. Pepsi tastes better than Coke. Pepsi tastes better than Coke. Four out of five people say Pepsi t tastes better than Coke. Take the Pepsi challenge. Everybody who takes the Pepsi challenge says Pepsi tastes better than Coke. What's in your mind? First word. Boom. What is it right now? Coke. Thank you. <laughs> Duh. And, well, by the way, Pepsi doesn't taste better than Coke, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's my personal opinion. But, but my but point the is they've is there, spent yeah. billions of dollars educating the world that Coke is the category queen. They are, yeah. they are the stupidest marketing company maybe in history. 
Matter of fact, I had the opportunity to have the former CEO of Pepsi. I forget her name now. Um, she had written some book to have her on Follow Your Different. And I declined because they're one of the stupidest marketing companies in the history of the fucking world. This is something I wanted to ask you about because of brands like this that we always, you know, when I read Category Pirates and glean so much from it, I'm always asking this question of, it seems like the category king or queen almost has it out for them from the beginning. It's like they're, they're, you know, the writing on the wall, the startup has either, is either going to create a new category or they're not. But something I loved about this recent, the most recent newsletter was this idea of how can large name brands who already have established credibility, who already have great products, how do they act in this category mindset, right? And you gave the example of of uh, Nestle because you said that essentially what a company has to do is think about what's coming, those macro trends, and develop a smart strategy to address them. So like, what, what would you say to a big company who's like, we wanna be on the forefront of category design, but we already exist. We're, we're not starting a new category. <laughs> like how, how can they think from this mindset too? So it depends on, it depends on the context of the question and the conversation. If the, con if the question is, we have an existing product that dominates an existing market category, so we are a category queen, how do we protect that position and grow that position? The answer to that question is, is one thread, which we can get in if you want. And then the other thread is, um, we're a, uh, S and P 500 company. We, um, uh, we have dominant positions in a bunch of different categories, and now we're looking to pioneer something new and different. How does an S and P 500 company, um, do that because the history of success with S&P 500 companies doing that is not very good. That's a different thread. So of those two threads, and I'm happy to answer both of them, if you're like, wh where would you like me to start? I wanna hear both because that's the question I get from companies who ask me about category design all the time is, you know, we're not a startup. What do we do? How do we look for the next big trend and capitalize on it? So literally educate me, take me wherever you wanna go. Okay. So a couple things. Number one, trends don't just happen. So uh, one of our biggest, so in category design, to learn to think like a category designer, one of the things we teach people is start off any thinking conversation, that is to say a conversation that requires thinking about new and different things, by rejecting the premise, that is to say, I reject, the common wisdom about this thing. Now, you may circle back to it, but if we start by rejecting it, we open the aperture of our brain to think about new and different things. So we start by uh, rejecting the premise. So of the two questions you want me, which one do you want me to start with? Number two, actually. Number yeah, two, I'm a large company and I'm trying to create a new category. Great. So. Here's the first aha. Large companies, CEOs and executives of large companies get paid to do two things. Don't fuck this up. An old colleague of mine 
Nick DiGiacomo used to say, Christopher, the reason big companies, and he was, you know, quite a bit older than me at the time, well, still is, <laughs> uh, um, the reason big companies are conservative is they have something to conserve. And he's right. So, so A, don't fuck it up. Conserve the thing. And the thing is the category and your market position in the category. That, so that's point A. Point B, legendary category leaders are constantly um, moving the edge out, expanding the category. So, um, uh, you know, if you look in the consumer world at Eddie, Eddie's the category guru. He's written more for the uh, HBR on category than any person ever. And he spent his entire career in the S&P 500, mostly consumer world. And so um, um, if, if they're an existing category queen, they're going to expand. But you want me to answer the second question. So let me answer the second question. Understand first that everybody in your company gets paid to protect it and grow it. So now you're going to, you have to create a separate group. You can't assume that people who are motivated, incentivized, and have spent their whole careers protecting, defending, and growing are going to create a breakthrough. They are not. So essentially, you have to create a startup within the company, what some people call intrapreneurship. And the most important thing you have to do with them is get them the fuck away from the rest of the company. So one of the greatest stories about this of all time is the creation of the personal computer. Um, and this is exactly what IBM did. They created the category and, of course, the first product. And they took a group of legendary folks and they stationed them in a different place and they hacked them off from the business and they left them alone. That's essentially what you have to do. The modern example of this, you might have seen this recently, Ford in the last several days announced they're splitting the company in two. There's the EV Ford and there's the combustion Ford. And they're going to share certain things and, you know, so forth and so on. But they're running them as two separate businesses. And there were some rumors that were that Ford might actually spin the EV business out as a separate publicly traded company. As of now, they've decided not to do that. We'll see what happens going forward. But the point is, Ford's getting it right. Because the as-is business has to reject the 2B business. Because the likelihood the 2B business is a threat is very high. So you have to run it like a startup. It has to have a separate group of people. It has to be separate. You, you can't expect people who get paid to defend, protect, and grow an existing thing to act like pirates. In other words, the, the defenders, protectors, and growers live in an incremental world. And look, I don't want to sound overly uh, pejorative here. There is some powerful incrementalism. And, you know, if you're Ford and you um, can lower the production cost of your vehicle by half a point, that's a lot of money. 
and you did a good thing. And continuous improvement is a very good thing. And small improvements over time can lead to very big things. So I don't want to be, I don't want to, uh, I love this expression. Miss, I don't want any, I don't want you to misconstrue what I'm saying, <laughs> which is, um, most business executives of major corporations work on incremental things. Startup founders work exclusively on exponential things and people doing the incremental piss off people doing the, the, um, the exponential and vice versa. One of them is a moonshot that may or may not work that you could criticize the shit out of. Every legendary new category is a very stupid idea until it's not. Airbnb, dumb idea. Brian Chesney gets, gets laughed out of every office in Silicon Valley. You, let me understand this. You want me to rent? You, you think people are going to rent their couch? Are you insane? You know what the liability of that is? Never going to, what are you, nuts? And then some legendary VCs at Sequoia Capital could imagine, and this is very important, a different future. And so category design is about creating a different future. Most people assume the future is um, a continuation of the past. And in a lot of cases, it is. But there are these big new categories that emerge. Some people call them black swans. And now, uh, who, what, what company would you ra rather own stock in, Airbnb or Marriott? 100% Airbnb. And now, right. company called Trusted House Sitters. I don't know if you've heard of them, that they're, they're essentially, you can go stay in, in, in a mansion and babysit or pet sit someone's cat for a week while they're out of town for free. And they're just now starting to gain traction. So heck, new categories all the time. It's, it's awesome. And look, everybody thought Twitter was stupid. Myself included, by the way. I'm like, what? This? Tweeting? What do you? Well, we can talk about this if you like. Um, most people can't see this part of what's going on with the war. This is the first native digital war. And that's a big part of why, at least at this stage of the game, Ukraine has done far better than most people expected. It's not the only reason, not, you know, nothing's that simplistic. However, um, the ability to communicate, some people would say propaganda, um, using social media, the cloud and smartphones. You know, what do you have? You have Putin getting on TV. And you have Zelensky standing in the street with all of his direct reports, with his arm out doing a video selfie that he posts on Instagram. More importantly, he has inspired an entire nation of digital citizen journalists. So, you know, I've been watching this very carefully and I bounce around the three major news networks in the United States, Fox, MSNBC, and uh, um, of course, CNN. And I've been fairly disappointed in all of them. 
Um, I think Fox has had the best coverage, um, but um, I've been pretty disappointed in all of them. You know why? Because you know who's crushing them? TikTok, Twitter. TikTok, Twitter, and TikTok. Instagram. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> and why? Because as incredible as their field of reporters and analysts, and they can get generals and all that, and that's all very cool, but you know what? When a single mother in Kiev does a video of what just happened to her apartment building, that is potent. When independent individuals decide that they are going to report, that is powerful. When the publication called the Kiev Independent, right, that's powerful. And so, and, and they're collating and collecting what? Videos. Videos of Russian soldiers surrendering, you know, videos of all sorts of things, right? And so my point is, um, this is the first truly native digital war. We saw it with the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring happened in large part because for the first time at scale, this is well over 10 years ago now, we had digital native digital citizen journalists. And now the first time since September 1st, 1939, war at this scale has broken out in Europe. And part of why there is worldwide support for Zelensky and the Ukrainians is because of how savvy they have been about leveraging the first native digital war. 100%. 100%. I know we could talk about this for hours too, and we're going to have to debrief again on this later, but watching the impact of what the movement of certain companies has been or not been to either engage with Ukraine, it continue engaging and doing business in Russia or deciding to stop all of that, like by the day, by the hour seems to be shifting in, in terms of its power and effectiveness and heck what Musk is doing too in Ukraine by sending out Starlink, like amazing. And, and, and we're well, and going I'll tell to see you. what happens. Because I've been on the front lines of this. There was a small number of us in Silicon Valley very early into this thing, like a few days in, who became disgusted at the lack of inaction amongst tech companies to stop doing business in Russia. And we put together a proactive campaign, both in the background, covert operations, reaching out to leaders that we know who can either are major leaders or can get to major leaders and an overt action on social media, shaming, calling them out. Uh, in my case, podcasting, naming names, saying, why haven't we heard from these fucking people? And guess what happened? Apple, to the best of my knowledge, was the first to pull in the tech space. Oracle, SAP, Accenture, a McKinsey, uh, BCG, um, EA, the game company. Uh, actually, you know who I think was the first one? <laughs> Circle back. The first one might have been Pornhub. <laughs> Pornhub said, hey. no porn for you in Russia. <laughs> anyway, Hopefully my point is... Hopefully that doesn't is, send them all the men into war instead. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, exactly. And so my point is... There were a small number of us in the tech industry who 
conceived of very rapidly and executed a plan to push, influence, and shame major tech companies to get the fuck out of Russia and say, listen, every dime you make there is blood money. Period. End of discussion. We could be at the beginning of World War III. We don't know where this is going, but we know it's really, really, really bad. And we know that the, that, uh, the U.S. government and the EU and NATO has said they are never going in. We'll see what happens over time. But regardless of that, as business leaders, what can we do? We can cut Russia off completely. And now all of those companies, I mean, you're just seeing a massive cascade. And as of right now, Coke hasn't pulled out. And if you go on Twitter right now, Coke is experiencing the biggest shitstorm you could imagine. KFC, McDonald's, um, uh, you know, the major restaurant chains, same thing. They're still in Russia. They're getting crushed right now on social media. And so uh, Exxon fucking mobile came out and BP came out and said they would not do business with Russia. Do you think they did that because they thought that was a great idea? Fuck no. They did that because people in the digital world applied a tremendous amount of pressure. And so that's another part of this being the first native digital war. Not only do we have courageous citizen journalism happening in the Ukraine, not only do we have uh, a 40 something year old Ukrainian leader who's closer to being a native digital than a 70 something year old, uh, uh, you know, relic, right? You, you never see Putin walking around with his arm in the air, looking into a iPhone, talking to people like a human being. No. Right. And so the, these are all examples of, you know, we introduce in category design this concept of from twos. We're going to move the world from the way it is to a new and different way. We're what, and we call them Frodo's for short. We're watching these Frodo's in real time. Now here's the aha beyond the situation in the world. When we do category design today, one of the questions we ask is, what percentage of your customers are native digitals? And are you doing category design through a native analog lens? So I'll give you a simple example. Super Bowl ads. Well, nobody watches the Super Bowl if you're native digital. Right? And you certainly don't care about the ads. TikTok, Instagram are um, the number one, and Twitter are the number one ways native digitals get news. So my point is, if you're buying ads on TV, you're insane. Unless your category is 60 or 50 or older. But if, if, if your buyers or some meaningful percentage of your buyers are younger and therefore native digital, you have to meet them where they are. And they're not on TV. That's why Zelensky does his own direct to constituent communications on fucking Instagram. And Putin stands there in this, you know, made up fake studio to make himself look like he's the grand poobah king shit at Turd Island. And he talks on television. And he's completely lost the propaganda war. 100%. 
it's and so it the, is learning, the learning the learning for ceos the learning for cmos the learning for business leaders is are you putin or Zelensky? because most companies are still run by native analogs and they think getting a cover story in ink magazine or fortune magazine is a great outcome nobody reads that shit nobody we used to write for those people nobody reads it i would write an article that was on the front page of fortune.com for five days and there would be no measurable increase in traffic to our website not a nothing Yeah. And, and, but leveraging podcasting, leveraging LinkedIn, leveraging Twitter, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, nine months after the launch of Category Pirates, we're the number five paid business newsletter in the world. You know why? We met people where they live. We're not, we're not running TV ads for Category Pirates. What are we, fucking some some old person medicine if you're an old person medicine absolutely <laughs> that should be your slogan category pirates <laughs> is not an old person medicine <laughs> exactly quote lockhead this has been so much fun seriously i know you've got to get to your stupid meeting so <laughs> i could talk to you for hours let's do this again um yeah i i am just so you know too I, I'm going to publish this episode as soon as I can possibly get this thing edited and out because what's happening right now in Ukraine is and Russia is a phenomenal example of the, the native digital world, of the native digital um, war. You're absolutely right. Like this, this is a war that for the first time is being controlled in many senses, not necessarily the outcome, but what we can do to get the messaging spread to to hopefully well, there's, deliver there's, the best possible outcome is 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 in the hands of teenagers. Well, get this. Right now, there's 16,000 mercenaries on their way to join the fight in the Ukraine. Why why is that? Because Zelensky and the Ukrainians are legendary at digital native digital communication. Anyway, I do have to run. I'm not late for a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> they're, talk, they're emailing me going uh, are you joining us or what <laughs> are you alive <laughs> all right i've just thank found, you thank you hannah you know i'm a giant fan i'm so so stoked and so dare i say proud of you for starting this podcast and all the work that you do um i think you're amazing and um i'd love to have you back on my podcast and i'll do anything with you whenever you want me to <laughs> let's do it bad tuna right. uncle <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.